0: We are incredibly excited to have with us someone that I have admired for a long time. He is a, a law enforcement leader. He is a unabashed conservative. And, uh, and he's a community leader as well. And that's Sheriff David Clark from Milwaukee County, Wisconsin. Sheriff, I'm going to get right to it. There is uh, there's a crisis in this country. And the crisis right now is playing out in your home state in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And I think a lot of people are frustrated. I'm frustrated because we're seeing a lack of information coming out of the Jacob Blake situation in Kenosha. Can you give us our thoughts on what law enforcement leadership needs to do to balance the investigation and the need to get information out to the public?
1: Sure, and I was in many of these situations myself. You know, I spent 24 years with the city of Milwaukee Police Department, major urban area, before I became the sheriff, serving uh, four terms as the uh, elected sheriff, people's representative from the sheriff's office in Milwaukee County. So I have a lot of experience, nearly four decades. I remind people I don't know everything, but at the same time I have a lot of experience in these matters that I like to share with the public and I like to give back to people on the front lines. As it relates to Kenosha, Wisconsin, Kenosha is about 40 miles southwest, um, I believe, south, southeast, I'm sorry, southeast of uh, Milwaukee, not that far away. As a matter of fact, ironically, I was at a support to police rally for the Kenosha Police Department about two months ago. I spoke at that rally and it was right where Ground Zero is right in that park across the street from the courthouse I'm familiar with the area. Um, But, you know, you mentioned, and I think it's it's worth worthy to point out that they seem to have taken a step backwards in terms of, you know, what people need today. You mentioned people need information. I understand because I was there and I also worked in detective bureaus. I was a commander in the detective bureau, worked homicide, violent crime, conducted uh, interviews at the scene before the media. I understand that in the early parts of this investig- in these investigations, not a lot is known. But then I just remind people, you know, and then I say, I could say a few things and give them something and remind them. I said, keep in mind that first facts are those um, most subject to change. In other words, things can change from what I'm saying tonight. And you have to point that out, you know, as a, a preface, and then give people what you can, okay? I mean, you have to nowadays. Before, we used to be tight-lipped. We wouldn't say anything about investigations until it was complete. That doesn't work anymore. So you have this situation, again, a police encounter, police have to use force, uh, deadly force. They didn't kill the individual, but deadly force is, is defined as that which is likely to cause great bodily harm or death. So
0: so what can citizens do in these, in these surrounding areas? In Kenosha, I understand that, um, Protests are going to move probably up to Milwaukee. They tend to move up to Madison. What can what can citizens do to help support the police, maybe quell some of these rumors, and also protect themselves and their property?
1: Very interesting question, uh, which there's an answer to. You know, the the thing is, uh, one of the things that, and I'm versed in riot control. I was tutored by an, a retired CIA agent who's since deceased, but uh, uh, he was involved with the CIA with how these riots work because there's a foreign influence to them. And there is here as well with the the Marxist Mm -hmm. influence with Black Lives Matter. So the CIA was monitoring and and studying riots And, and he taught me in the technique of riot control. And I also had to oversee riot control in Milwaukee, Wisconsin in the uh, late summer of 2016, when after a police shooting, a riot broke out. So at least I had some experience in how these things work, how they come together. They happen in phases. Like I said, they are not spontaneous events. They are not uh, organic. It's planned, it's organized violence. So, you know, there's a role, you know, have to know who the actors are in these things and then how they work. The infrastructure for this exists in every major urban city in America that's how it can it can turn very quickly. And when one happens in one place, all of a sudden you see, and that happened here, what happened in Kenosha, in Cleveland, and I believe uh, New York, you know, they had some uprisings because the infrastructure is already there and all they have to do is dial it up. The reason why it exists in these major urban areas, one of the things that people try to point out, and although it's true, it's not uh, at the heart of it, I see these are Democrat controlled cities in terms of the political class, right? The mayors, the councils, the town boards, so on and so forth, but that's not the heart of it. The heart of it is these movements are are designed around mass manipulation, quickly organizing people who don't uh, have a sense of what's going on but they're easy to manipulate and you have to have people. That's why these things are in urban centers and you don't see these in suburban areas because there aren't enough people to amass in, in a very quick period of time. So, you know, there is a role for citizen groups in this but they have to be supported by the police and it has to be an ongoing thing so once the riot occurs and again they don't break out this is organized planned organized violence they're started by people once it occurs it's important for political leaders and for uh, law enforcement executives to continue to remind the public keep your powder dry Don't rush to judgment, even though you know many groups will. and the riot organizers do not care about that. They know they can overcome that. But it's important to talk to the law-abiding community to give them some sort of sense that somebody's in charge and we will get our arms around this thing and here's how we're going to do it and continue to update them. Use those channels, use those groups to help spread the word that you want out through their social media to refute the rumors to put out the facts that they, that are known at the time by law enforcement, and through that networking, you can at least stay on top of this stuff. It still may get away from you because rumor and speculation are very powerful uh, with mass manipulation and, and, and people who aren't going to be discernible and sort it out themselves. We understand that. You can't get frustrated by it. You just have to keep countering it with your own factual information.
0: Sheriff, right now, once again, our Second Amendment rights are under attack, just based on the events of the last few days. And I'll never forget, I was living in Illinois at the time, in 2013, when you got on television and you told the residents of Milwaukee County that they needed to consider getting trained and arming themselves for their own self-protection that's something now that I think people are incredibly interested in, in these frightening times that we're living in. Where do you stand on that suggestion now? And where do you stand on our second amendment?
1: Stand in the same position I did back then that I always have. Look, self-defense is the first law of nature. People want to survive. It's a God-given right. People know what to do you know ordinary americans everyday americans they know what to do to protect themselves and their family and all i did was quite the firestorm after that all i did was remind them that they have a duty and a responsibility to protect themselves and their families and i said that 911 may not always be your best option and what i meant by that is when the wolf's at the door somebody's breaking in it's going to take uh, you know while while it takes the police you know, longer periods of time to respond to these things because of the demand for service and the calls that are coming in. You can play a role, and I said in that ad, you can hide under the bed, you know, you can cower under a desk or whatever. I said, or you can fight back until we get there. And I just reminded people of that. It's always been their role, but they weren't hearing it for a long time. Even law enforcement, I think that they were just serving people when they would say, just call 911, just call 911. 911 call centers are flooded. They're, they're overburdened. They can't keep up with the calls coming in to immediately dispatch services, a law enforcement cruiser or, or uh, uh, a, a police officer. And so there's a role that, that citizens can play and I just reminded them of it. That still stands today. Look, you know, now with what's going on in these urban centers with these riots, you have police being ordered to stand down, police are reluctant to jump in even when there's a confrontation between pro-police groups and rioters, the police are afraid to intervene. But look, the citizens have always had a right to defend themselves. I encourage them to do it. I also you know, use this caveat, I say act reasonably. That's the lens you'll be judged through if you have to take action. Was it reasonable under the circumstances? And I also remind them, have a plan. Think about it today. Don't wait till the wolf is chewing through the door. Think about it today. Hey, if somebody broke in, what would I do? You know, if you don't have a, uh, a means with which to defend yourself, that's what the message was that I put out there in that 30-second ad. I said, consider taking a firearms course so you can protect yourself and your family until we get there. That is sage advice.
0: It absolutely is sage advice. And now we see a situation where in, in urban areas, the other night in Portland, Oregon, for example, 60 to 70 911 calls go unanswered. And yet we can't even get people who want to be police officers now. What do we say, Sheriff, as as a police leader, what do you say to people who, you know, you and I loved our decades in the law enforcement profession. But now we're asking people to come to a profession where you're, you may be hated, um, you may get hurt. And you may go to prison. You may get indicted for murder just for being a police officer. What do we say to those people, Sheriff?
1: Yeah, for simply doing your job, right?
0: Absolutely. You need to
1: have the support of the political class. And that includes uh, prosecutors. Some are elected. You know, state's attorneys are elected. uh, District attorneys are elected. And they have staff uh, that stays with them regardless of who might win that next election, but they've always judged this through the reasonable officer lens. Now they're judging it through the political lens. They're judging it and they're making decisions based on calls from an angry mob. So you ask about recruiting. First of all, shame on law enforcement. You know, the first thing I always do is I take a look in the mirror and I say to myself, when someone asks me a question like this, I don't start looking outwards and blaming this group and that group. I look in the mirror and say, what could we have done different who have affected a better outcome or a different outcome. Maybe it's not always gonna be better, but it's different. And, and this started after the days of Ferguson when the cop haters, and I told you, this is planned, organized violence. They know what they're doing. They went to work demonizing this profession. They called us racist. They called us bloodthirsty. They said that uh, law enforcement officers uh, go after black males as if it's some sort of sport. It was all lies, it was smears. And we didn't push back on it. We didn't push back on it enough. I was out there pushing back on it, but I didn't have a whole lot of help. And that bothered me with law enforcement executives. I didn't see them stepping up, chiefs and even sheriffs in some cases. I didn't see them stepping up to join me to help push back. But I said, the heck with that. Somebody has to do it. This is a proud profession. We're more professional. We're better educated. We're better trained than at any time in our history. All right. And there, there are some... Uh, you know, disgusting practices law enforcement used to be involved in back in the 60s, the 50s, the Jim Crow era. I understand the civil rights area. I understand that. But the public demanded that we change our ways. And you know what? We did. So now we're sitting here and we can't recruit because, you know, the people who the population we have to recruit from our communities, they're looking at this and saying, holy man, you nuts. Why would I want to go into a career where I have, one of two decisions, I go to work, yeah. and I can either defend myself if I if I have a, a reasonable and a lawful need to, but I could end up being charged with murder or aggravated assault. There goes my career, there goes my family life, so on and so forth. And people are looking at that profession and they'll say they're saying pass and they gotta move on. So what I'm afraid of though is that we'll overcorrect, and because it's harder to find people, especially for your urban. Uh, areas the suburban areas aren't going to aren't facing it as much but you know they're hiring maybe one or two officers a year whereas large agencies you know are hiring hundreds but what happens because this stuff has all happened before people knew their history when i say people law enforcement executives they went through this recruiting thing before after the uh Ernest Lacey case all right what was that 30 some years ago maybe almost some years ago We went through this again, you know, so history's repeating itself. So I asked, what did we learn from that? We went back building up this reputation of American policing, the the nature and the heart of the law enforcement officer. They come from the community, they want to serve. You know, they're service oriented and we rebuilt the reputation. And that's what we're going to have to do again. But you know what happened first? They started watering down the standards. They started loosening the standards on who they would take. They were taking people now with arrest histories. They were taking people now who had drug use histories where, you know, those are automatic uh, disqualifiers, but they had to because they had no uh, no other recourse. But you know what that leads to? Further problems down the road. You sweep it under the rug, you say, well, a little drug use, we'll take it and we'll monitor it. No, leads yeah. to a lot of problems down the road when you sweep it under the rug. And a lot of those officers end up being problem officers down the road and so when you start to water down the, the uh, uh, standards with which to hire, you pay a huge price. So I hope we don't go down that road again, down that rabbit hole. But you know what? Yeah, we're going to have to work harder now to get people to enter this profession.
0: And now we're hearing from the, from the anti-police crowd, the defund the police crowd, that we need to be out there doing, doing more community policing. We've been doing community policing since the 70s. And now they're cutting our budgets. Austin, Texas is a great example of that. They they cut out uh, millions of dollars out of the Austin police budget. And most of the programs that were cut were community policing programs. And yet we're supposed to be doing more community policing. We're supposed to get rid of so-called warrior training. I'm not really sure what people want from the police anymore. Do you have a handle on that, Sheriff?
1: Yeah, you know... Uh... I have to smile because, you know, like you, I spent a long time in policing and we've been community policing for, like you said, since the 70s and nothing's changed. We have spent millions and millions, probably hundreds of millions of dollars through federal grants, state grants for community policing, and yet people are still asking for more community policing. Here's the problem, all right? What needs reform is the community needs to be reformed. What we have is the explosion and the growth of the underclass mainly the black underclass. They bring some urban pathologies with them. You have children without fathers. You have children born into dysfunctional homes. You have children that are neglected. You have women having children with multiple men that they aren't raising. You have ineffective parenting. You have school failure. You have uh, questionable lifestyle choices by young people like joining gangs and drug and alcohol use and criminal activity. That's what needs to be reformed. The community has to take a strong look at itself, and the community has to say, hey, look, you got to change your ways, all right? We're going to shame and shun this behavior instead of embracing that behavior, because that's what we do now. We embrace it as if it's mainstream, and it's not. It's not mainstream at all. It's cultural rot. It's cultural dysfunction, and we have to demand. We as a community have to demand that these communities clean up their act change their behavior change their lifestyle to affect a better uh, a better outcome so what we do is we always look to the police we keep trying to change the police we're working on the wrong thing the police don't need change the community needs to change we've loosened standards of expect acceptable behavior we've embraced criminality and said you know these nonsense with sense second chance programs for people with uh, arrest records as arm as your law as, as long as your arm and you know they, they release them back to the street catch and release revolving door all into the lap of the American police officer and then we tell the police officer hey go fix it so then when we go to deal with this dysfunction and this cultural rot brought on by failed liberal policies if you will and then when something goes horribly, horribly wrong not through the fault of the police officer necessarily, and all of a sudden, they look at the police and say, Wow, well, what happened? Why didn't you, you know, second-guessing this? Well, we need reform. We need, you know, this, that, and the other. And, and see, we end up coming back to the same place that we were back in the 70s. And then we expect things to be different. We expect things to change. That's not how change works. You don't just demand change. You know, who was that that said, you know, be Gandhi, be the change you want to see? And so the, the, the underclass, not the entire Black community, But see, I say what I'm saying to you everywhere I go, publicly on TV, radio, community groups, you know, people understand it and they get it. You see their heads nodding. I go into a black church and say the same thing and their heads are nodding because they know. They know that this isn't a police problem. This is a societal problem, but they want the police to solve it. We can't solve that. We can keep a lid on it. And probably that's probably about it.
0: Sheriff, can you be a back the blue kind of person and, and still say, yes, the civil rights are important and, and the black lives are important. Are those things mutually exclusive?
1: When, when we talk about the bad cop, all right, those are outliers. Those are one-offs. Okay, Because if you look at the amount of, of, of citizen police contact, I saw a figure, I think Heather McDonald, uh, Manhattan Institute researcher on policing and police agencies, police policy, uh, a lot of her stuff has been peer-reviewed. She's respected within the research community on this. I think she said in 2018, there were 375 million police contact, uh, police citizen contacts. 375 million. So out of those, the law of averages, and you're dealing with human nature, you're going to get some bad ones. But it is a s- insignificant number that doesn't even register on the, the radar screen. Everyone jumped to conclusion on the uh, Officer Chauvin case in, in Minneapolis. And I'm not here to, to uh, justify what happened there. Those officers are going to have to do that. However, the fact is that a George Floyd was not asphyxiated. He did not get choked to death. He died of a heart attack and he was high. He had lethal amounts of fentanyl in his system. That doesn't justify what, what Officer Chauvin did. However, when we look at that, and then we say we need to change the entire profession of policing on a one-off? Exactly. We have to start pushing back on that and saying no. Instead, we walk around saying, well, there's some things that, that, that could change. There are some reform. No, 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 we need to push back and go, look, that's a one-off. The system will take care of that guy. All right, the criminal justice system and any other officer will, it will take care of that. There is no need. It's not necessary to reform an entire profession on a one-off. It is amazing. Look at the uh, amount of teachers, and see nobody wants to talk about this and, and we don't hear about it. The amount of teachers who are inappropriately engaging in sexual activity with their students. Absolutely. Okay? I don't hear any calls to reform teaching. Look at the amount of doctors that screw up, not intentionally, and it leads to a patient's death. And I put 250,
0: this- 250,000 a year. And there doctors you go. doctors will accidentally have
1: patients. A- and I have heard no calls, not one, to reform the medical community. You know why? We don't need to reform the medical community. Those are one-offs. It's within the law of averages. And it's within human nature that these things are going to happen. We don't riot when a doctor uh, gives the wrong prescription or misdiagnoses somebody and they die because of it. We don't riot when we find out a teacher uh, had, had, was having sex with a 14-year-old female student. But all of a sudden now, because of this false narrative, and we allow it to happen, when you get a one-off in a police situation, you know what, now they don't just revolt or or riot over uh, a a bad police incident, they riot over justifiable police (laughs) incidents, and we allow it to happen. So
0: I I don't buy
1: into this, yes, we need to reform. I don't buy into, uh, yes, we need to do it. I go, no, 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 no. These are one-offs. We can review things. You can look at things, but to have these huge policy shifts in policing on a one-off is very dangerous, knee-jerk reaction policy that leads to the law of unintended consequences.
0: Absolutely, Sheriff. We need more courageous police leaders like you, and we need the community to back us up. And if you would like more information about the National Police Association, join us at nationalpolice.org.